<laughs> no, I mean it's such a it's such a big question. It's like you're asking, like you know, what causes war? Lightning round. What, what, <laughs> question yeah, what one: causes, What causes war? <laughs> um. Oh my god. I mean, yeah. There's just so much to. Yeah. Hold on. Let me just let me write some. I gotta. You see, the problem is we don't talk about these things beforehand. I don't. I'm not like I don't have any thoughts. You know what I mean? Like, no, I have to like. I think get my thoughts together. We have, we have time for thoughts. We, this, is right. a, this is a shoestring operation here. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Cheap Talk. My name is Jeff Kaplow. I'm an assistant professor of government here at William & Mary. And joining me, as always, is my esteemed colleague, Marcus Holmes. Welcome, Marcus. Hi, Jeff. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. You want to do some listener questions? Mm-hmm. Nobody... Uh, gave us a, a speak pipe message that was suitable for airing, either due to the colorful language that was used. Sounds about right. Or um, the lack of content in in said in said yep. uh, messages. But yep. we did get a couple of email uh, questions of things people wanted to talk about. So I thought I would throw them out. Let's go. I'll, I'll kind of give these these folks uh, pseudonyms to, to protect the innocent, because I don't know if I'm supposed to say who they were. But let's call him Paul from Arlington has a question about a recent statement by President Biden uh, related to the U.S. commitment to defend Taiwan from uh, an attack or an attempt by China to take Taiwan. And President Biden said something, I think, in the the CNN town hall that recently aired. Um, Somebody asked him about Taiwan and he said, we're committed to defending Taiwan um, or something along those lines. Is that, is that language what, what he actually said, Marcus? Let me get this right. The, the, the question was posed like, as a yes-no question. So, like, would we, we would defend Taiwan if – I can't remember if this question was, like, China invaded or China attacked or whatever. Uh, and he said yes. And then I think Anderson Cooper, sort of being shocked a little bit at the, at the response, the clear yes response, followed up. And Biden said something to the effect of, yes, we have a commitment to do that. The, that being come to Taiwan's, you know, defense. Right. That, that, that's the quote. Yes. Yes, we have a commitment to do that, he said. To do that. And he, even there, though, it's a, it's a little ambiguous, actually, because like what the that refers to could be disputed. But in any case, that was that was the gist. So I know in both our classes, we've talked about this idea of strategic ambiguity and this policy that the United States has had of kind of hinting, implying, suggesting that we would be willing to defend Taiwan uh, but yet not openly saying so. And this is an attempt to balance the the risk of an actual conflict that we don't want to get into. And we don't want to encourage Taiwan to get into. Um, so for those who have missed both of our classes on this, you know, one issue here is called moral hazard. This idea that if we offer insurance to Taiwan in the, in the form of an alliance and we say, hey, Taiwan, will have your back if you get into a scrape. Well, then that might encourage reckless behavior on the part of Taiwan. They might say declare independence or something, knowing that they have the U.S. backing who defend them if China reacts poorly. And so we want to avoid that because we really would like to avoid a conflict um, between the U.S. and China in any way. And so um, we haven't openly stated that we have an alliance with Taiwan to leave this ambiguity there. But we want to send enough of a signal to China that we might have Taiwan's back that they don't go ahead and, and uh, start that war anyway. So we've been kind of in this middle ground that we like to call strategic ambiguity, but that other countries might think of as just confusing. And so this question was kind of interesting because U.S. presidents tend not to come right out and say that they're committed to the defense of, of Taiwan, as it seems like Joe Biden did. So... What does this mean, Marcus, for this idea of strategic ambiguity? If we entered a new era in U.S.-Taiwan relations or U.S.-Chinese relations where we are willing to state more explicitly that we're, we're there for the defense of Taiwan and China should back off? I have a couple thoughts on this, Jeff. So I think overall, the way that I look at the U.S. strategy towards China in the last couple of years, you know, at least since the Trump administration. Um, and remember, for our students who, who you know, may not have been paying as much attention to this early on, the Obama administration wanted to do this so-called pivot to, to Asia uh, with its foreign policy, wanted to sort of monitor China, balance against China, all that kind of stuff, pay more attention to Asia Pacific, and for a variety of reasons, just kind of got pulled back into the Middle East, as often happens with, with U.S. presidents uh, in Libya and other places, Afghanistan, of course. And so with the Obama administration, there wasn't as much, um, I don't think, sort of uh, hawkish rhetoric towards China. There was a little more of a, 
a reassurance kind of um, approach. Not that that they really, you know, sort of got along great with China, but the idea was to sort of be accommodating and try to engage. And then when Trump obviously, you know, becomes president, that changes uh, considerably. He, his uh, approach to China was very aggressive, in my opinion. You know, China was was sort of posited as the number one enemy. It was China, China, China. We heard China all the time. Any any problem the United States had basically was blamed on China. And I think now uh, with Biden, he's in a little bit of a of a unique situation in the sense that he doesn't want to uh, appear to be a, a too accommodating of, of China. I think a lot of the rhetoric, the rhetoric that the Trump administration used, I think it landed on the American people. Um, and so I think that there's a there's a sense that you have to be hard uh, with China. And this might be a reflection of that, right? So, so Biden saying this. Now, you could you could question whether he meant to say it, whether it was a slip up, whether you know it was, this was a, a well thought out. He knew this question was coming, and it was a thought out strategy. I don't know the answers to any of those those things, um, but I think it does reveal a little bit of a of a more hawkish stance uh, towards China, which is in keeping very much with what the Trump administration did, and I think a departure, interestingly enough, from the Obama administration, of course, where Biden was vice president. The other thing that I was showing my class the other day, which I think is interesting, the Chicago was it Council on Global Affairs? Right. They do this, you know, data collection exercise, popular opinion, public opinion on a variety of topics. And, and to their credit, they've been doing this for a very long time. And we were looking at some data yesterday from uh, the last, since basically 1980s, asking the question, do you think the United States should, you know, defend Taiwan if, if uh, China invaded? I think it's invaded or attacked. I can't remember what the exact question is, but something along those lines. Um, and, you know, you go back to like 1982 and it's something like 21% say yes. And the latest data that they have from August of 2021 is up to 51%. So, you know, that's uh, 1980s to, to 2021. That's a long time. But over that time, um, we've seen a, a big increase in the idea of using troops, U.S. troops to defend Taiwan if China were to do something. And supporting my the thesis that I was giving you a second ago, there's an uptick around 2016. So when you, when you have that sort of Trump uh, rhetoric coming out, you see more of a, uh, an increase in the, the American public's willingness to use, um, to use force or you send U.S. troops to uh, defend Taiwan. This doesn't mean I don't think that Americans really necessarily would feel that way in, in the moment. So if, if China were to invade, would Americans uh, still, in that instance, support sending U.S. Uh, servicemen and women to die? Uh, defending Taiwan, I'm not sure, but they indicate now that they that they would. And so I think my my sense is taking all this together, I don't think it's the end of strategic ambiguity, um, but I do think we're entering a, a period where the United States might be a little bit more willing to make it less ambiguous than it was before. So I don't think we're going to see you know strong statements, you know, telling China, but you better back off, stop talking about Taiwan. When Xi does these speeches where he vows you know reunification with Taiwan. I don't think you know Biden's going to come out and in, in, in a very hawkish way uh, confront that, but I, I do think that we're we're moving towards a world where this is probably going to become less ambiguous uh, than it has been uh, in the past. Yeah, so I, I I tend to agree with you. It's been kind of interesting seeing the fallout after this statement. I think many people expected the White House to kind of walk back President Biden's statement, but it looks like I mean, unless I'm unless I'm missing something. Um, here I'm, I'm reading a quote uh, in response to reporters' questions. A senior administration official said Biden remains, quote, committed to the Taiwan Relations Act, through which the U.S. will continue to assist Taiwan in maintaining a sufficient self-defense capability, which is kind of our policy. Um, the White House did not respond to specific questions about whether Biden's comments were mistakes or deliberate. And, you know, it, it's kind of interesting because I think that many people see this kind of statement particularly when it can be written off as mistaken, you know, off the cuff kind of statement as as helpful in signaling to China that the U.S. really is committed to the defense of, of Taiwan, even if we're not willing to make that the official policy. And some have speculated that this is Biden's personal view and he is kind of responding with his personal views when people ask him questions and is less concerned about whether that is kind of the the established public stance of the United States. And so to the extent that you interpret this statement in that way, in your in China, um, this is helpful information because it potentially tells you more about the U.S. commitment to Taiwan, which is, as we've said, you know, been kind of historically a fairly ambiguous thing. But I think all of the forces are moving in this direction of being more explicit about our commitment to defend Taiwan and in general kind of pushing back against 
China, um, wherever, wherever it makes sense to do that. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, one of the things I was talking about in my class is, you know, every once in a while, um, you know, some, some people in international relations talk about moments like what, what Biden did as this sort of like front stage backstage situation, right? So he's on a, he's, he's literally on a stage at this town hall and he's projecting, you know, what presumably is, is a sort of well-manicured, uh, polished set of comments to these questions that he gets all the time and he wants to project a particular image. Um, and then in diplomacy, uh, oftentimes people slip up a little bit and they kind of give you a revealing insight into what they actually, <laughs> actually are thinking. Uh, now, sometimes it's because the diplomats are at a bar and they get drunk. And so that that leads to that. But other times it's just a it's a it's a sort of turn of phrase or it's like one sentence where it kind of reveals something about, you know, what's in the head of the, the person saying it that doesn't quite fit with the, the other image, the other the projection that that the state was trying to make. And so some people that I've, I've I follow on Twitter have been sort of making this point, maybe what this is. And it's similar to what you were saying. Maybe this is just not if not necessarily a slip up a little glimpse into the way that Biden at least is thinking right. about this issue, which is not necessarily the same thing as the United States. Um, but if, if the, the head of state is thinking of it in this way, I think that that's, that's important. The other a piece of this, though, I, I wanted to uh, mention, and I, I brought this up to my class as well. One thing that gets lost in these conversations sometimes is, is poor Taiwan. You know, like the Taiwanese people who, uh, if, you, if you go there and, and talk to them, they're and many times as conflicted about this whole thing as as folks in in the United States are, right? In the sense that some of them uh, self identify as you know being Chinese and being part of China, and they and they think that the one China policy makes a lot of sense. Others are very much uh, sort of aligned with the, the West, you know, put in broad strokes. Um, wants independence, uh, needs protection from from the United States, and or with, you know with the United States from China. And so I always, I think it gets overlooked sometimes that there are actual, you know, people living in, in Taiwan that you know, we sort of talk about it as strategy. And it's like this thing that goes back and forth, like a football going back and forth. But there, there are people here who, you know, it's, in some sense, their lives are on the line. If China decides to, to invade, I mean, this would be a, a tremendous, a mon monumental uh, uh, event in, in world history. And I think we sometimes overlook the fact that there are, there are people living their everyday lives that have to like sort of live under this uh the situation and it's not like they all agree uh and are sort of with biden on this or with you know uh, xi or or somewhere in the middle so it's just something that i think is is worth pointing out well they may not agree on on that point but i think everybody agrees attempt to retake or to, to take taiwan militarily is um not going to be good for, for anyone yes. right i think we, we can all agree agrees. that it would be good to avoid that yeah. and it's becoming kind of increasingly dangerous out there. I mean, China has gotten very aggressive in recent months, violating Taiwanese airspace, you know, flying warplanes um, by Taiwan to try to um, kind of keep everyone in a high state of alert. And experts who look at this region see this time period as very, very dangerous. Mm -hmm. And the potential for a military attack is a full scale invasion. Is, is really there. We're in the kind of high risk period. And people have been warning about this. But I think the folks who follow this see now as a very risky time in a way that they haven't in, in previous years. And so um, that's one of the reasons that everyone is kind of hanging on uh, President Biden's every word when it comes to Taiwan. Hannah from Vienna, Virginia or Vienna, Austria? Virginia. Oh, <laughs> Was <laughs> not not I her mean, actual know, location, but I, we I have, was we have an international there. audience, so I, right, I, I, right. it, was, uh, it was it wasn't clear. It was ambiguous. Yeah, Hannah from Northern Virginia wants to us keeping on the the President Biden theme. Right. Uh, wants to ask about the interaction between U.S. public opinion and U.S. foreign policy. This is something that you know I think can be sometimes frustrating for students in my class, at least, because I am very focused on kind of the international. Although I often have a kind of U.S. centric perspective, which I'm, you know, try to shed, but but fail generally. But I, I'm not focused on domestic politics in the course very much. And, and I think students are sometimes frustrated by this because it seems like it should matter how popular the president is and the underlying kind of partisan dynamics in Congress and all of that stuff seems like it should matter for how U.S. foreign policy is conducted. And so Hannah wants to know, does the fact that President Biden's approval ratings seem to be slipping does that matter for how the U.S. conducts foreign policy, for, for the U.S.'s ability to achieve its goals in international relations? And we've talked a little, we've touched on this a little bit, Marcus, earlier this season, kind of the, the idea that 
politics ends at the water's edge and how that was kind of a dated concept. And we have kind of more partisanship when it comes to foreign policy these days than we used to. But we didn't address this specific question of does the president's popularity matter? I'll, I'll just start off with, with one answer, which is I think uh, it is certainly true that U.S. public opinion matters for U.S. international policy, that you cannot ignore the views of the U.S. public when you think about what can the U.S. as a country accomplish in the world. And that's because much of what we do in the world requires some political will. And so I often talk about this with regard to the use of military force abroad. So I'm about, I have a, poli- a policy memo assignment that's happening in my class that's going to be due in a couple of weeks. And so students are currently working on these things. And some not insignificant number of students will recommend in their policy memo that the U.S. president send troops to do something in the world. This is a fairly common policy recommendation that I get when I give this assignment. And the, the big question I always have, and so this is a hint for those of you who are working on questions along these lines, is what will the U.S. public think of this decision to put U.S. lives on the line for this particular policy goal? Because if the U.S. public is against it, then it is very difficult for the U.S. government to sustain a military operation over time. Um, It just creates a number of barriers. Congress won't want to support it. Um, The president will want to put an end to it quickly, right, to, to put that behind him. And it's not that the president is like, buckling to public pressure. It's that in a democracy, the government is kind of subject to the will of the people in some way. And so you can't sustain, you know, decades long wars, except for Afghanistan, that are that are unpopular, um, or it makes it much more difficult to do so. And so I think it is correct that at least in some way, public opinion matters. Now, whether it matters in terms of the president's approval rating today, that's a that's a a more difficult question, I think, to answer. Jeff, I think that's a that's a great point. I, I would I would add so on to that the your point, and then I'll add a couple more. Um, I think we see this oftentimes when when I talk about um, humanitarian interventions and uh, genocide in my class. One of the points that students often raise is, you know, why 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 don't U.S. presidents do more um, to prevent bad things from happening in the world or get involved in in places where things are going poorly? Um, and because it, it seems like you would, as a, as a human being who cares about other human beings, you might, you know, think that in Rwanda, for example, the, you know, Bill Clinton should have, um, who knew what was going on, should have done something, put, put troops on the ground, right? And I think one of the explanations for why this doesn't happen gets to the political will issue that you were, you were talking about, where there's, there's a lot of risk politically uh, for U.S. presidents to do things that cannot, that don't work. And will backfire uh, politically. So one of the explanations for why Bill Clinton didn't get involved with in, in Rwanda was what had happened in Somalia, uh, the whole Black Hawk Down um, situation, where U.S. soldiers were, you know, not only killed but also beaten and tortured and basically dragged through the streets uh, on national uh, TV. So something like that happens, and and your your uh, domestic, the price that you pay domestically for that is is high because people don't like seeing American service people like in the, in that situation, and so therefore it becomes much harder. Even if you think you're doing the right thing, when they interviewed Bill Clinton later, he said, "I made a mistake. I should have sent I should have sent people in." Uh, but the problem is that in that moment, you know that if if something doesn't work and and it, it goes wrong, and you're you're taking a risk when you send servicemen into any any type of of uh, conflict things can get really bad uh, at home for you. So it's not an excuse. It's not to say that he shouldn't have, have done it anyway, but that the political costs at home can be uh, constraining and can be something that, that really affects the decision-making calculus. When you were asking the question originally, though, the thing that popped into my head uh, as being, the, the I think, one of the more salient aspects of this, and it's, it's psychological because that's, that's what I'm doing and I'm interested in, is the idea of prospect theory. Um, and the, the idea here is, is simply that human beings look at and evaluate uh, losses and gains differently. And, a, and a, a sort of common way of understanding this is just losses feel worse than the, the sort of joy of, of winning. So uh, we really don't like losing. Uh, and when we're losing, and we have been losing for a while, we're often willing to take more risk to get back to uh, either status quo or get back to uh, a, winning, a winning position. 
Anybody who's been to Vegas and has done a little gambling in their lives knows this feeling. You lose a couple hands of blackjack, three hands, four hands, five hands. You start to feel really bad about yourself. You want to get that money back quickly. And oftentimes the sort of gambler's fallacy kicks in and, and people will start, you know, putting up more money to get back what they had lost. In other words, take it. I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about, Marcus. And I wish you wouldn't be looking directly at me when you say that. I feel like you're just I'll speaking personal, although I don't play blackjack more of a craps player. But it, but in any case, it doesn't really matter the game. The idea is simply you want to get back that which you've lost. Now, how does this play out uh, politically? Well, some people have argued that U.S. presidents exhibit a, a type of this behavior. So, uh, you know, when when Jimmy Carter's approval ratings uh, are, are poor, it's looking like his reelection chances are not good. Uh, some people have made the argument that that made more likely a risky uh, operation that he, he allowed, that he affirmed, which was the Iranian uh, hostage crisis, the, the intervention that we tried there that did not go well. So in a sense, you can think about these approval ratings as creating uh, a little bit of a a little bit of a reference point for, for decision makers, right? And it's not that I don't think that they're looking at their approval rating and saying, boy, I need to go do something in order to uh, make these numbers better. Although I think there are cases. I mean, there are, you know, our, our colleague Amy Oaks has written a book on diversionary war. I think there are some instances where policymakers do actually go out and, and do uh, these types of, of endeavors for domestic reasons. But I think the, the prospect theory example is a little bit more subtle. Um, and it's, it's just sort of a, a, a way that, that people are assessing risk. And so if you're in a situation, let's say, where Biden is looking at his approval rating, he's not feeling great, people are comparing him to Trump. He's saying, this is terrible. I started off so good. My reference point was, was solid. And then I got hit with you know, the COVID vaccine stuff, and I can't get people vaccinated. And I got hit with Afghanistan, and things are just not looking good. It's not that Biden's going to say, I want to go to war with China because I want to get these approval ratings up. But if he's in a situation where he's making a decision, the way he evaluates the risk might be affected by what's happening to him domestically. So I, 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 and I, when I talk to students about prospect theory, I don't want them to think that this is a, akin to gambling in a casino, because I don't think it is. But I do think that there's a, there's a subtle effect that sometimes happens, again, on the very specific question of how to evaluate risk. Can I just say one more thing, Jeffrey? And, 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 and sure. we, I'll get, I want to get your take on this as well. I think a legitimate question to ask is also how do we know and measure public opinion, right? So there's lots of different ways you could do this, obviously. You could ask a question, you know, do you think the, that uh, the United States should in, uh, respond to a Chinese invasion of Taiwan? That's fine. Some people say you could do an experiment. So you, you sit people down and you run them through a very different, you know, series of scenarios and you have control groups and you see like, you know, okay, well, in this situation, people are more likely to, to support the use of force. And in this situation, they're not. Um, but I think one of the things that strikes me about measuring public opinion on on issues that are number one highly complex uh, and also require a lot of knowledge, I think, to really fully understand, it's just very difficult to replicate the feeling uh, in in the moment. Right? It's hard to predict in one's mind what one might be feeling. As I sit here right now, thinking about what what might I be feeling if China were to invade Taiwan tomorrow. I think cognitively I can get there. I'd be, I, I, I think to myself, I'd be very nervous. I'd be afraid of what's going to come next. I would, I would expect some type of UN statement or response or whatever. So I can, I can kind of run through the checklist, but it's very hard to replicate, I think, the emotion and the sort of affective response that people would have. And I think that affective response ultimately will dictate what people think about the situation. We, we experienced a few months ago uh, the pullout of, of Afghanistan. And I think rationally, cognitively, if you told people, you know, we're going we're gonna to leave Afghanistan, it's going to be a little messy. Um, there's going to be some, some tough days there. There might be some terrorist attacks and things like that. But ultimately, that's the right decision. I think a lot of people would be on board with that. But then when it's happening and they see it with their own eyes and they see people storming the airport trying to hop on airplanes, you know, with the landing gear, it changes the, the, the situation dramatically. And so I think the basic question of how we know how the public would respond in a particular uh, situation is very difficult to actually get at, you know, and, and I think surveys and, and experiments are, are useful, but I think at the end of the day, give us limited insight into, into what people would think given, given the situation actually happening. Yeah. Well, I certainly agree, certainly agree with that point. Uh, strong criticism of survey experiments that attempt to assess the, would the U S public support X or Y thing, or would the general international public support this thing 
is they're very often structured as a kind of vignette. So you, uh, the way this works is you have a control group and a treatment group. And in the control group, you um, call up your survey respondents and you tell them some story and you ask, okay, do you approve of the leader in this situation? And then for the treatment group, you call up a, a different group of people and you tell them a very similar story, but with one small change that captures the thing you're trying to look at uh, with, with this survey experiment. So you might say in the control group, there's this conflict with Taiwan doesn't say anything about the U.S. response. And then in the treatment group, you might say, add a line which says, and the president said the U.S. troops would be coming to the defense of Taiwan. And so now you can capture what is the effect of that kind of a policy move on overall presidential approval. So you ask all the respondents in the control and treatment groups, what is your approval of the president in this situation? And so by doing that, you can kind of capture, uh, or at least the experimenters say, you can capture the public support for that policy option. But one problem here is that in the real world, when stuff happens, there is a policy debate. So you almost never read a news story about some major foreign policy initiative where there isn't someone saying, oh, my God, this is a horrible idea. And here's why. And there isn't someone saying, thank God they're doing this. This is the best idea ever. And here's why. And it's very hard to kind of replicate that policy debate in this artificial vignette approach that folks have taken, for the most part, to survey experiments. And so it's not clear when we do these whether we're really capturing this kind of naive view that, that Americans may have before they're informed about anything, before they have some kind of baseline level of knowledge, or if we're capturing what they're actually going to feel in the moment, which will be supported by a lot more information that they're getting. And I think, I think that's a, a real good, real strong criticism of some of this of some of these approaches that they they capture this naive view that doesn't reflect the reality of what would happen if we were to actually uh, actually implement these policies. Right, I, I totally agree. And you know, as somebody who's done some experimental work in my uh, myself, like I, I'm very cognizant of of these issues. And it, what's striking is, like, oftentimes the experimenters, um, and I, I sometimes I guess count myself in this group, will say things like. To, to the response to what you just said is, is Jeffrey, that's exactly the point, right? Because what we're interested in with an experiment is the internal validity, right? So for the, the audience, you know, the, the idea of internal validity is like, you know, can I, in a very controlled way, uh, identify what we talk about as, as causal inference? Can we get causal inference in, in, in what we're doing? And basically the idea is, can we clearly see that one variable is affecting another variable in some way? And then the external validity question then is how well does this sort of vignette or this experiment sort of tell us anything about uh, the real world? How applicable is it to the real world? And most of the criticism of experiments are on the latter side, right? Because they're, they're like of the type that I just talked about, which is to say like in a real world experiment you would have, or in the real world, you would have lots of emotion. You just can't create that in a, in a laboratory or on a survey experiment, although people try. Uh, and so but the but the the point that experimenters will make in response to that is that's true that's exactly correct like we we have external validity problems but there's no other way arguably to hone in on this causal inference problem precisely because the external world is just so messy and there's so many confounding variables that you if you're not going to do an experiment then you're never going to be able to say with any degree of certainty what what's causing what you're basically you know just telling stories that may, might be well connected, these dots that you're connecting. But, you know, at the end of the day, we don't have any sort of like uh, real sophisticated, clean way of getting at the causal inference. So it's it's a fascinating, I mean, if you like methods, it's a fascinating discussion because it sort of pits the idea of how important is causal identification? How important is that causal inference uh, nut to crack versus the applicability and uh, sort of the extent to which it's congruent with the with the real world? And many of the most heated debates in political science, uh, including international relations, are sort of between those those two uh, uh, perspectives. So anyway, I, I think the the end of the, the the point here is that measuring public opinion is hard, uh, particularly when it comes to something like uh, nuclear war or invasions or uh, genocide or something where there's there's tons of of debate back and forth about what the right answer is. Should we do this or not? It's hard to predict what the emotion of the moment is going to be like and how it's going to uh, affect people. And it's while you might be able to identify causally in a, in a very simple experiment what, what's doing the work, there's always this lingering issue that in the real world, things just aren't as simple and aren't going aren't to work that way. Um, and that's, that's a tough methodological problem 
uh, to deal with. Yeah, I guess my kind of quick response to that would be that this puts a lot of pressure on the readers of these findings to interpret them correctly. Because I think where we we might make a mistake is in granting external validity to these experiments without uh, kind of thinking that through completely. I think sometimes experimenters are very careful in how they interpret their results, um, and they are appropriately constrained and talk about how in the real world, yes, there'll be all these other issues. But what we're capturing here is kind of the naive uh, response of, of the U.S. population to some stimulus, absent emotional investment, absent this kind of ongoing debate that would, ha- would of course, happen in the real world. And so it's a starting point for thinking about how the U.S. Po- uh, public would respond to some, some policy. And then it is summarized in the Wall Street Journal in a different way, right, that, that kind of says, oh, my gosh, the, the U.S. population would love us to invade China, when that isn't really what the experiment is saying. And it comes down to how we interpret the findings more than any problem with the actual findings themselves. Totally agree. And for the students listening who might be interested in this topic, I think one of the, the areas uh, that is, is really kind of an interesting question to ask yourself is when you are given surveys as a college student, for example, the people are, are doing experiments on you, whether it's in a psychology class or a government class or whatever, do you think that those findings should be relevant or would be relevant for uh, application to Biden or to you know things that are going on in the State Department or Defense Department? Because ironically, it actually turns out that a lot of the work that's done uh, in political science in an experimental realm are either on college students uh, or anonymous people on the Internet. And that, that sort of uh, is, represents the bulk of the respondents of research uh, in experiments in international relations. And so you have to ask yourself, do you think uh, – what was it? Was it Joanna from Vienna? Joanna from Vienna. Hannah. Hannah. Hannah from Vienna. Apologies. Hannah, do you feel like – the experimenter can can draw conclusions from how you respond to this experiment and apply them to Joe Biden or to Vladimir Putin or anybody else. And if the answer is no, then experiments might have an issue. Now, there's a whole other branch of experiments that, that try to – the one way to get around this is to do the experiment with so-called elites like policymakers and retired policymakers and then do the same thing with quote-unquote normal people like college students and see if you find any differences between the two samples. So there are ways around this. Uh, but it's very hard to get Biden in a room or Obama in a room to do your experiment on them. And so there's always going to be this lingering question of even if we can replicate all the emotion and the debate and everything that Jeffrey's talking about, the people that we do these experiments on might themselves have something to do with the results that we find, and they might not necessarily pour it over to the policy world. Yeah, well, so I think both of us have, have tried doing elite experiments in the, in the past, and uh-huh. you run into... You run into the same problem. It's just like turtles all the way down with these experiments. So <laughs> if you try to do the the experiment on the elites instead of, you know, your college students, uh, a captive audience, well, now you run into the problem of the only people willing to do your survey are the elites with too much time on their hands, right? So there's something different about the group of people who's willing to yeah. willing to spend a half hour filling out a, a Marcus Home survey versus the ones who actually have work to do. Those are different people. And so you end up getting a biased sample for that reason, too. So it's just a really hard problem to find uh, a generalizable result from, from these, these various approaches. But we've moved very far from Hannah's initial question about, about uh, <laughs> this is a research methods podcast. Yeah, yeah. Well, we should call is, this like R squared. This is the, the danger of, of asking us open ended questions. I think we have time for, for one more, though, that I wanted to get to. Yeah. And um, this is from Alex from Alexandria, Virginia. Um, how convenient is that convenient right alex asks about covid vaccine diplomacy this was a major issue we discussed last year's version of this podcast when um, vaccine diplomacy was still a thing we were we were talking about which is basically the idea that if giving giving vaccines to countries that don't have them could be one way to extend influence in the world and this is something that that china uh, had kind of embraced that they were going to give away tons of their of their vaccine to other countries. And um, the U.S. also got on board with this. But of course, they're not calling it vaccine diplomacy. They're calling it, you know, humanitarian effort to make sure that other countries have have this vaccine. And of course, also, I should note that this is a important part of the public health response to COVID, because as long as COVID is running rampant through other countries, it will continue to come to the United States. And so there's a self-interested angle here for that reason as well. But Alex wants to know who is winning the COVID diplomacy race. 
Is it China? Is it the United States? And does COVID diplomacy matter for international relations? Again, a very good question, Jeff. Let me let me let me take two different uh, stabs at, at answering this. I think what happened from the United States' perspective, and I'll answer the first question second, but I think what happened from the United States' perspective is that Biden uh, was inaugurated, and I think he was fully on board with the idea that we're going to we're going to. Uh, be much more of a leader internationally. We're going to rejoin the World Health Organization. We're going to do COVAX, the, the sort of like institutional setup for sharing vaccines and making sure vaccines get to developing uh, countries and so forth. And then I think what happened was he got hit domestically with a country that, that wouldn't get vaccinated. And so the idea going in, I think, for Biden was we got the vaccine. Americans are going to take it. We're going to solve the problem here. And then we can turn our attention to the international problem. Now, maybe you would you should say that was that was short sighted. They should have been worried about the international problem all along. Uh, but Trump wasn't, obviously. And I think Biden's thought was I can solve the problem here and then I can solve the problem there. And then when Americans decide they don't want to take the vaccine, I think he's left looking around and saying, oh, oh this is a, this is an issue. I can't focus on the international. I got to focus here at home. I got to go try to figure out a way to get people to take to take the vaccine. So when we when he didn't hit his target in July, on July 4th, you know, 70 uh, percent Americans getting vaccinated. I think that was a moment where. Um, hope for vaccine diplomacy from the United States' perspective uh, probably was was dashed a little bit. I think the winner is China. I think the the hey you know it's it's hard to to without sort of getting interviews and and I mean I'm relying on like the New York Times reporting of of how much China's doing and and you know the real story probably won't be told for some time but it certainly seems like they decided very early on. Uh, that they were going to be a player internationally in getting in getting the vaccine um, deployed in the developing world, and I think the rationale was was both this sort of idea of you know soft power, this attraction idea, like we're gonna we're gonna win some friends, we're gonna people are gonna look at look at China uh, in a in a much better light because we're giving them the, this vaccine. But I also think that they were realistic um, in realizing that the pandemic isn't over until the world gets over, right? I mean, we have. Uh, if 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 you've been paying attention to what's going on in, in global trade, for example, there's all kinds of these supply chain uh, issues. There's global shortages of, of this and that. You can't get truck drivers. You can't get, you know, and not, not all of this is because of COVID. I mean, like Brexit, for example, has something to do with it. And lots of, lots of things are part of this. But if you are China and you're very much part of the global supply chain, uh, a huge part of the global supply chain, you have a vested interest in making sure that people are healthy around the world that, so they can work and they can buy your products and they can trade with you and so on and so forth. So I don't think it was necessarily only because China was, was interested in being an attractor or just because they were interested in um, you know, human development. I think that, that is all true. But I think they also realistically understood that as one of the major players in a global economy, the health of the global economy is relying on people being healthy and getting the, the, the vaccine. And so Partially because China was had a different approach to their domestic situation, and they were to you know put clamps down on on COVID at home. I think they had a little bit more more uh, ability to to do this internationally. I think that's where the United States got hurt. But I think China's China's winning. Um, I think maybe thinking about it in terms of a of a race is not necessarily the the right way to do it. I think this is going to be a challenge for the international system for years. I mean, it might just be a, a, a ever evergreen challenge in the sense that this might just always be with us. And so we're always going to be, you know, kind of behind getting vaccines for the developing world. But I think they are right now showing the leadership uh, on this issue of vaccine diplomacy. And the United States certainly um, has taken a backseat to them. Do you think it matters at all that China's vaccine seems far less effective than the U.S. vaccines that they're that they're giving out? I mean, is, it, is this kind of like it's the thought that counts and people are happy countries, developing countries are happy just to have a vaccine, even if it's one that doesn't seem to work very well against the Delta variant? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I know that uh, Nate Silver likes to, to be an epidemiologist on Twitter and, and a biochemist. And uh, I, I just I'm not comfortable. I, I don't know. I, I, it's hard for me to evaluate just how bad the China vaccine is relative to the Sputnik vaccine relative to. Well, it's hard for anybody to evaluate because we don't have, we don't have good objective data. <laughs> right, exactly. So the premise of your question is. You know, does it matter that their vaccine stinks? I mean, I, I don't know if their vaccine stinks, I guess is what I'm saying. If it does stink and it, it's water, then yes, I think that's a problem because eventually people are going to realize that this is not a great deal that they're getting from China. So the attraction power kind of falls through. But but if it, if it works even a little bit, that'll probably have some positive, positive effect. I think the one the one serious response to this uh, 
and I think this this falls on you know the United States and China and and Europe in particular. I think something needs to be done with the, the sort of patent situation, right? So, I mean, one of the, and I'm not an international trade person, this isn't my area of expertise, but my understanding is that there is, you know, very strong patent laws that the pharmaceutical companies have uh, that, that makes it difficult or impossible for uh, a company in, in the developing world to create the vaccine and, and distribute it, right? Because they want to hold the IP protection because they want to sell it. It makes sense. And the reason you have those is so that you people do research and try to come up with vaccines. It makes a lot of sense from a capitalist perspective. Um, but when you're in a situation where we have now in the in Europe and the United States plentiful vaccines, um, it might make sense for the World Trade Organization or whatever institutional body uh, to come together and say, we can, re- we can relax some of these patents uh, so that the developing world can catch up in making, in making the vaccine. So I think that that is one area where, again, it's not my area, but my understanding is that this is a potential game changer if that were to happen. There's very clear interest in the United States. I don't want that to happen, just for the dollars and cents part of it. Uh, but I think that would be that would be very important uh, in terms of solving the overall problem. Yeah, I saw a story today that I think um, Pfizer or Merck, I'm sorry, is going to be licensing its uh, COVID treatment oh, good. In, in other countries to allow them to make less expensive drugs that can help to treat COVID in, in patients, which is uh, definitely good news. I mean, I, I know we are not scientists in that way, but I'm happy to tell you that the, <laughs> d- despite my lack of expertise in this area, what I do do, Marcus, is spend all my time reading COVID studies. And so I can tell you that China's vaccine appears much less effective against the Delta variant than than the mRNA vaccines uh, here in the U.S., uh, Pfizer and Moderna. And Pfizer has been used all over the world, but has not had as much penetration into the developing countries because it is still very expensive. And so um, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which is one that the U.S. has given many doses to other countries of, um, has also shown kind of lower levels of effectiveness against the Delta variant. You know, what the developing world is getting is not the best uh, on average. And that I think it matters. I really do, right? Like you're going to be a recipient of this gift of vaccines and you think you have a path to putting the, the, the pandemic behind you and it turns out that these vaccines aren't working as well. And of course, like, I don't think China gave them, gave away vaccines with the idea that all these are no good, right? I mean, those are the vaccines that were effective in kind of the first wave of this virus. But still, like, you got to imagine that that has effect on how your benefactor is perceived in these countries, perhaps. Yeah, and it, it does sort of fit into the overall narrative or problem that, you know, unfortunately, the developing world just comes in, you know, second. And so they get the they get the less effective vaccine. Sure. They get the sort of things that, the you know, we wouldn't tolerate in the West, um, Europe and the United States. And so they, yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that. I think you're right. I think it does. It does matter. The debate over giving of giving boosters and vaccines to children who are at much lower risk in the United States versus giving the same vaccine to someone at very high risk in a developing country, I think makes the U.S. not look great to countries that are kind of looking at this discussion. Now, in reality, from the perspective of decision makers here in the U.S. and you're deciding whether to get vaccinated and whether to get your kids vaccinated, the, the choice isn't between you get vaccinated and the vaccine goes to another country. It's the choice between you get vaccinated and the vaccine gets thrown out. And so, like, you know, you know, I, I don't think there's really a question of what individuals should be doing in the United States. But it does raise this issue of um, from the perspective of the developing world, the way this has been handled by the countries that have resources and have vaccinations at their disposal, um, you know, raises all sorts of, uh, yeah. of questions. No, it's, that's exactly right. I mean, as usual, it gets back to this sort of haves versus have nots. Sure. And, and the tragedy is that it, it probably didn't have to be this way. You know, it, it, if we went back in time and reran the tape and, and we were in a world where we were going to see international cooperation and maybe global leadership that's from somebody then maybe things could have been much different. But unfortunately, that's that's not how things played out. And now we are very much in this sort of siloed, you know, we're going to do what's great best for Americans. And that's that's what U.S. politicians should do, by the way. That's what they're, they're paid to do. That's what they're elected to do um, and make sure that everybody gets the vaccine. And as a consequence, the developing world is, is again, you know, falling behind. It's, it's, it's tragic. Well, that's a 
downer note on, on, on which end. <laughs> we'll fix that in post. All right. Well, I think we have uh, handled several of the questions we got for, for this week. Jonah uh, from uh, Schenectady. I'm sorry we didn't get to you next time. Right. Jonah from Schenectady will be first stop next time. We've got questions for people from Stafford, Virginia. We have questions for people from Falls Church. That's right. That's <laughs> we, right. We got we covering all the Finally, all the no, bases. no one in Williamsburg, interestingly. No, the Williamsburg they don't they don't they don't. We're very popular in uh, Nova. Let me renew my invitation to folks to reach out to us with your questions or comments by email. You know how to reach us that way or via Speakpipe. That's www.speakpipe.com slash cheap talk. And we will put you on the air. You'll be beamed to all 17 of our listeners with your with your question. Um, we'd love to hear it. And um, Marcus, I, I guess uh, thanks so much for for joining me today. I appreciate it. This was this has been fun, Jeffrey, as always. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. We'll We'll see you next time. Can we talk about Banner for a minute? Can I can I just talk a little bit oh, about Oh, I thought you were going to say Bannon, like Banner, the, the January 6th subpoena. No, no you're talking we, about Banner. Can we talk about the registration process for our poor, long-suffering William & Mary undergraduates? Sure. Let's talk about it. So as you may know, Marcus, the system by which we register, the piece of software known as Banner, has had some trouble in recent registration periods in which the fact that students are registering comes as something of a surprise to this piece of software and it responds by crashing thus preventing <laughs> all students from registering for the classes they're supposed to be in now the crack it staff here at william mary led by our esteemed cio uh that's chief information officer i think who's probably listening to this podcast who i'm sure is one of our 17 listeners have investigated this situation over the course of the last 10 20 years taking their time and have come to the conclusion that there was a database issue created in a recent upgrade to the software. And they have since rolled back that upgrade or changed, or they think they have fixed that database issue. Yet they've decided that they didn't fix it sufficiently that Banner can actually handle the registration process. So what they've done is they've divided registration up amongst two groups of students for each registration period. So for the students assigned registration period, they'll be assigned to one of two teams, let's say, the green team or the gold team. And the green team starts their regist registration at uh, one time, I think 6.30 a.m., go green. And then like a half hour later or 40 minutes later, the other team gets their turn. And the idea there is to diminish the load on the software so that Banner's like, well, I can't handle all... 300 students at once. I can handle 150, though. And so we'll handle that 150, then we'll handle the next 150. So this, we've gotten a series of emails as faculty about this, explaining the situation. And uh, I gotta say, I, uh, I'm not satisfied with these explanations. I mean, I feel like this is the kind of thing that the university ought to be able to do, that we're not talking like iPhone launch day or anything. Like, we're not talking streaming the World Series you know, we're talking what, like a large number of hundreds of students at a time, <laughs> a large right? Like, like we're not talking four figures here. I, I really don't think, right? Because it's divided up by class, and and like how many students are there? That it's not that many, right? How, how is our software not able to handle this? We, we probably have more listeners lifetime to this the podcast than are registering for call 100s on November 4th. Oh, we definitely do. I do not understand how this is not something that we have already taken care of. And I don't understand how every semester the people responsible for this can send out these emails and not think to themselves, what have I done with my life? What, what, how am I still doing this? Shouldn't I have made different life decisions? I agree with you, Jeffrey. And what I also is what's particularly perplexing to me it's not like William and Mary sat down and, and put their heads together and said, let's get some computer programs here and we're going to create something called Banner. No, Banner is a software package that is used by like universities around the world, many of which are much larger than ours. And so what I don't understand is why there, there isn't in the, in the communication between the Banner people and the people running the servers at William and Mary or whoever is running the servers, why can't, why can't one of these people, these sides, figure out what's going on? Because it's not like this has happened once or twice. It seems to happen all the time. And the banner folks have experience with lots of people logging into their software 
all at once because this is how every university does it. And so I, I'm mystified as to why, uh, number one, it's taking so long to identify the problem. And then the identification of the problem, as explained to us, seems to make no sense whatsoever. So uh, there was a what was it, an unintended object or an unnecessary object in the code? It was an unneeded database object, Marcus. An unneeded database object in the code. OK. I, and it, <laughs> I, I, I bet there is a student in one of our classes who could code up the back end of this thing, put it on Amazon Cloud, and we could all just that could handle registration. This is not a huge problem. This is not a huge number of people to accommodate. I do not understand. I feel like with a some some sophisticated programming in a Google Doc, we could probably run this registration. Yes, you could handle this in Google Forms. Forms.google.com. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I don't think Google's going to crash. They have some experience with, with dealing with high numbers. What I really want to know is how they randomly chose between who's going to be green and gold. Yeah, I mean, that's not a trivial problem, right? Because they, they have to divide evenly between everybody in different majors. Yeah. Because they're trying to keep, like, the, the demand equal. Then they have to divide they divide up the class availability. This seems like almost a, a more— it's harder. In, this is going to crash banner, right? <laughs> Just <laughs> dividing into two groups is going to knock the software out. Oh, God. I so— Every once in a while, I, I don't know. I'm just so embarrassed. I'm so embarrassed by this. I feel like this reflects on all of us, and I don't understand what the administration did. No, it doesn't. It doesn't look good. It doesn't look good. I pulled up the the registrar's uh, website and looked at the the various windows for when people register, and it's 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 quite a lengthy uh, list of various windows for registering. And registration is already ridiculously complicated. Right. It's like it really is over the top complicated. You need to know about all these different attributes and instructor mm -hmm. permission and caps on classes and prereqs and corecs and, and call attributes. Tiered enrollment. Tiered enrollment is the new thing. And there are major restrictions. And so just what we all needed was and now half of you can't register. This <laughs> <laughs> well, Jeff, I'm glad that you got that off your chest. I, I can I tell feel... it's been bothering you for, for some time. And, and to be to be fair, I really do feel for the freshmen in particular because they're, they don't this is their first experience, really, with the joys of, of registering for classes. And last time it was messed up. And, and hopefully this time it's not going to be messed up. But in all likelihood, it will be messed up in some way. The other just piece of this, that I, 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 if, if we're going to put people into green and, and, and gold, why do we also then need to have them waking up at five in the morning to register for their classes at 630? That part doesn't make any sense to me because it seems like you're dealing with the load problem by dividing people into two groups. I don't know why then it's necessary to say, OK, now you need to get up in the middle of the night also to register for your classes. That doesn't make sense. Yeah, I think I think they think it can handle 200 people at a time, but not 220. Because and they're so, hoping that 20 will oversleep and not, exactly. and not wake up. Yeah. Exactly. OK. Well, well if, if any uh, if anyone's. <laughs> Any of our students are listening to this. Uh, set an alarm. Because, because <laughs> set an alarm right now. My sense is that uh, seats and classes are a little tight this, this next semester. And so right. it will behoove you to be one of the first people to try to register. And, that, and you have a chance of getting in before banner crashes at that point. 